0: This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. I'm Faith Saley. Welcome back to another season of Real Good. For those of you who have been around for past seasons, you already know that we love a good story. Living in the U.S., the immigrant story is embedded in our culture and identity. Many Americans have great pride in knowing where their ancestors came from. And we're getting better at digging up our roots. With DNA tests and record keeping, we can find out more about ourselves than ever before. But history and record keeping is subject to the same institutional limitations that we've seen in past seasons of this show. Not everyone is equally represented which means countless immigrant stories of resilience and perseverance are yet to be told. Our guest today is somewhat of a professional storyteller. As the founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino, Jorge Zamanillo has the unique opportunity to tell the stories that we maybe didn't hear about in history class. He's shining a spotlight on a community that's largely left out of our country's narrative. With the help of US Bank, he's giving Latino Americans an opportunity he did not have himself, seeing themselves as a significant, noteworthy part of American history. Jorge is trying to make sure that no chapters of our long, complicated, and inspiring story are skipped. Craig, we're we're about to get all cultured up in here.
1: Yeah. Let's get our culture on.
0: (laughs) We we are here with Jorge Zamanillo, (laughs) (laughs) the director of the National Museum of the American Latino, and he is currently developing that museum as part of the larger Smithsonian museum system. I have a very vivid childhood memory of standing under the whale at the Smithsonian as a child. I think I think everybody who is lucky enough to visit the Smithsonian uh, as a child or even an adult has some kind of really meaningful, impactful experience there. So we're going to get into that. Greg, do, do you have a first Smithsonian memory?
1: I, I wouldn't say, well, I have a lot of Smithsonian. I tell you that the real connection I have to the Smithsonian is, and we talked about this in a previous season, you asked me who some of my heroes are, and Lonnie Bunch, who uh, leads the Smithsonian system, is one of my heroes. So I, you know, I'm just excited um, about the, the Museum of American, La- the, uh, the Museum of the American Latino, and the fact that the Smithsonian has taken this on, and Congress has passed this. is just so exciting. I'm really excited to get into it with Jorge.
0: Jorge, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to join us here today to discuss this work, and and also your trajectory of moving from anthropologist to museum administrator welcome
2: thank you for having me it was great
0: um jorge Zamaneo. does anyone call you jay-z
2: they used to, yeah. You know, it's uh, <laughs> I was a little jealous when when he got famous. You know, took my
1: creds. <laughs> my creds. There. Well, you're equally as famous. You're famous as well. Homer. Yeah, you we will be sure You will be soon. Everybody in America will know you.
0: You were on yeah. Kelly Clarkson, man. I did my research. I <laughs> I saw you talking to Kelly Clarkson about the museum.
2: That is great. I got many calls for that.
0: <laughs> now I want to add, uh, Greg. Meant, Greg, you mentioned how excited you are. Um, U.S. Bank is excited because the bank is supporting the museum to the tune of $1 million.
1: You know, yes. I mean, language, we see language um, as access. We see culture as access. And, you know, as part of our access commitment, which we launched back in 2021, February of 2021, which was all about closing disparities in wealth. But I think this notion of closing gaps in terms of culture and communities and It's an important part of our access commitment, so we could not be more excited, and we're very excited to make um, a contribution as one of the founding partners.
0: Okay, I think the three of us are all, I I think we're all Gen Xers. So I want to start with this pivotal moment in your life, Jorge. Um, I've seen a picture of it, and I believe it's 1988, and you are wearing acid wash jeans and an acid wash (laughs) jean jacket. In Washington DC in the winter, um, you want to take it from there. I feel like that's when everything changed for you.
2: It's it did, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, the fashion is, is unfortunate, but no, no, my, nothing but respect.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's a good look, Corey. That's I was trending back then. Yeah, no, you know, it,
2: it, it was a pivotal moment. As I tell everyone, you know, back then, you know, I was a year out of high school. I was a, a music major. Uh, deciding what to do with my career, and you know, I had that one visit to DC for the first time, uh, and I had a chance to to visit the Smithsonian and the Mall and the monuments, uh, and it was incredible. Uh, it, there was no barriers. You know, you could visit every museum you mm. wanted for free. Uh, of course, it was the middle of a snowstorm uh, after the Martin Luther King weekend. About two feet mm. of snow, and uh, and I was not prepared. As you this can see kid in the from <laughs> Miami, <laughs> I was not prepared to uh, for the weather, so I did. Purchased a, a scarf and some gloves from a I think from a street vendor, and a uh, and a cap and uh But I spent about three or four days just you know visiting all these museums, and it was it was really eye opening. You know, we didn't have any world class museums back then in Miami, and for me it was the first time that I, that I had this experience to to see stories being told and you know power of a real object and artifact, uh, and it's it's impressive. And I, and I really had the museums to myself. There were there weren't that many people around, so it, it felt. It was an amazing experience. It really was. Uh, and it sounds cliche, but it was kind of that turning point, you know, inflection point in your life when you say this could be transformational. You know, I got back. I got back to Miami and I, and I switched my major from music to anthropology because mm-hmm. I wanted to learn more about archaeology in the past. Uh, I started volunteering at an archaeological site, uh, which it's curious because that site now is where the Dolphins play football. The Dolphin Stadium site was mm-hmm. being co- constructed. It was right across huh. the street. So whenever there's major construction, you know, we would go in there and do some uh, excavations and studies. Uh, and so I, I volunteered there and I started getting paid and I said, well, you know, you can might maybe make a living doing this. So that was my trajectory. I, w- I was an archaeologist for 10 years uh, after I finished my undergrad and before I got into the museum field. But, you know, the Smithsonian really did change my life.
0: Uh, I mean, a lot of people visit, like you said, the Smithsonian, I think something that's so remarkable about it is that um, it is free. I think that it, it's, it's so yeah. beautiful that this is yeah. a free museum. I also think that a lot of people visit the Smithsonian and get Smithsonian fatigue because, because it's so many buildings and it's, it's so much. Right. Um, yeah. And so the fact that you at, as a, as a freshman in college spent days wandering there really grabs me. Was there a, was there an artifact? Was there a, was there a, something you stood in front of that, that really um, has a strong memory for you.
2: Yeah. I'm trying to think if it was one thing in particular, I think it was just uh, the totality of it, you know, Mm -hmm. the um, being exposed to it for the first time that there's so much more than what I knew. And that, Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's important. Uh, But I also recognized and I got to tell you from the beginning, I was not a good history student in, 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 <laughs> in high school. I didn't do it very well. And, I, and and part of the reason is because I didn't see any history that really related to me or to my upbringing. Yeah. Immigrant parents, Cuban parents uh, moved here in the 60s. And, you know, I, I didn't see anything about my community. So but I saw that possibility in museums where you could tell these stories. They weren't just about the Civil War or the Revolution. Uh, I saw much more about contemporary history. and I. And I I recognized the possibilities also um, that how I, I could contribute. So at first, I was really attracted to the prehistoric peoples and, and people that were here already, because that seemed to be more of a kind of detective game, you know, uncovering artifacts in the ground, trying to piece it together. You're kind of writing history as you as you produce reports and and, and, and these investigations to what you're uncovering. So that that really attracted me. And that's why I started in archaeology. But then little by little, you know, I realized uh, as I went to the museum field as a curator later on that now I had the control, the power, right, to actually produce content that was more relevant to my my community. Um, and, and we had such a diverse community in South Florida. So that's that trajectory really completely evolved right into something completely different. And that's
1: important. If, you know what I think is so um, interesting um, about what Jorge, there are two things I found really interesting. One was when you said the the history and your interest in history um, because you didn't see the history being told from your, your perspective, your community's perspective. You know, Faith, we talk a lot now about translation. We're going to be talking a lot about translation. Um, and when we, when we talk about translation, we typically talk about it in terms of translating from language to language. But there's also this cultural translation that has to do with relevance. Mm-hmm. And as a curator, I see, you know, Jorge, you essentially what you're doing is sort of translating history, translating artifacts, translating moments and culture, so that it's it's accessible to everyone. And I think this broader definition of translation, um, faith, is something that is really important for us to continue to to focus in on, because this museum is going to be an American museum. Yes, it's just being told from. The history is being told from a perspective of a community, um, from an ethnicity, from an ethnic standpoint that makes it relevant for everybody. It's just a human um, sort of testament to um, a culture and a community. So I, I really love what Jorge you're saying, and it's just this notion of translation just popped in my head as you were saying that.
0: Yeah, yeah. we 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 also, Greg, talk everything we talk about on this show boils down to stories and storytelling. Yes. Right. Because that's yes. that's what's resonant.
2: That's what's human. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, those stories are the ones that are going to form that narrative that we're trying to tell. And as we develop this museum over the next 10, 12 years, it's a lot of work because we want to make sure that we connect with you know, different communities across the United States and capture you know those stories and collect our artifacts. And that's really going to shape how Latino history is part of the larger American history narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. Jorge, how do you find the balance between speaking to the Latino community, um, which clearly has been underrepresented in a in a context like a, a big American museum, and to folks outside that community? How does someone come to the Smithsonian who may not be Latino and think, I need to walk in that building?
2: Yeah. And you know, when the visitor visits uh when When guests visit the museum for the first time, even in our temporary gallery, the Molina Family Latino Gallery that we have at the American History Museum, we opened that last June. And when people visit that gallery, um, it's not only about appreciating, you know, your own culture, your history, your heritage, uh, but you see visitors from all walks of life uh, come in Mm -hmm. there with a deeper appreciation of, of, and these commonalities that they pick out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Immigration and migration, parents moving to this country, doesn't matter if you're Latino, Irish, Italian. Uh, struggles and resiliency, all these themes and topics come up and you can start drawing those parallels. You start realizing, you know, we're, we're very similar. All of us, you know, we all come to this country. Most of us who have arrived here, except for people that were here before us uh, and we're all immigrants. We all moved into, you know, different parts of the United States and established our, you know, we built our families and our heritage there. We brought traditions and folk life, folk ways and different things that we, brought from other countries or from our family. And those are part of who we are individually. But at the same time, we've kind of, you know, become one larger community in, in the United States. And, and, and when, you, when you see an exhibit, if it's done right, and you, you're able to draw those parallels and those connections, it makes us so much stronger. And you come away with a much deeper appreciation of uh, who we are as a country.
0: I want to go... A little farther back in your life, so you can teach me things. Uh, I I saw that your parents arrived from Cuba in 1966 on what were called the Freedom Flights. Will you mm-hmm. Will you tell me what the Freedom Flights were?
2: Sure. Following the you know Fidel Castro and the Re- Revolution in 1959, uh, m- many Cubans decided to to leave the country and migrate to the United States and other countries seeking you know freedom and um, just you know, fear of persecution, uh, the government was changing the system, they were nationalizing everything, properties were being taken over, the school system was being nationalized. And, um, and many people decided, you know, we we need to leave, but it just wasn't that easy to to get a visa, let's say, permission to to leave the country and to, to arrive in another country was was difficult. So over the years, there are many different uh, phases of migration to the United States, and starting in the 60s was what we call the, the freedom flights, where there were these, you know, um, many citizens in Cuba were granted permission to to come to travel to the United States. Um, and it it took a while to to get that kind of uh, access a permission and a visa. Uh, but the flights happened in 63, then happened again in 66. Uh, I believe there was another wave in 72. Um, there was also another wave of, of migration called Operation Pedro Pan. Which is a curious, very interesting story. Uh, I did an exhibit about it in the past, and we also featured featured it, feature it in, our, in our gallery today. And that is uh, over fourteen thousand uh, kids that came unaccompanied oh, wow. to the United States, and the Catholic Welfare Bureau uh, was able to secure blank visas that sent to oh. parents in the United in Cuba, and they were able to send their kids, you know, on their own to the United States. And over fourteen thousand kids came from 1960 to 1962. And that's a, that's an amazing story in itself. Sounds and sadly, a bit like yeah. the
0: kinder transport.
2: Yeah, sadly. And it's largest one in the Western hemisphere after that. And then there's no, uh, some, some parents, uh, some kids, some of the kids were re- reunited with their parents. Some of them were not ever, um, you know, yeah. they stayed behind or they had their parents there or they had other kids. So it's, it's very difficult. And that, that's a perfect example of one of those stories that we have in the gallery. And if you visit it and you're not part of that story, you can still draw that connection. The same thing yeah. that was happening last year in the Ukraine, yeah. the same thing yeah. that's happened in Germany and in many other places where their parents are putting their, their rights to their children, right? They're protecting their kids and making sure they have a brighter, better future. And again, that's part of the larger American immigration story. Yeah.
0: What was Miami like when you were growing up there in the 70s and 80s? Because I feel like today our notion of Miami is that it is just... Uh, 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 of uh, a city yeah, it's like fully steeped in latino culture is that what you yeah, grew up with yeah uh,
2: not 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 really you know it's amazing we got I, I was born in new york and i got there in 1976 to miami uh my two sisters a brother and, and my parents and, and there's a, a, a large cuban community immigrant community uh and a lot a lot of what is downtown miami and, and near downtown miami it became called it was called little havana uh because that's where most of the cubans lived Uh, a lot of rental apartments and and housing there so when Cubans started arriving in the 50s and 60s it was very attractive because it was a very walkable community Uh, most people were moving out to the suburbs and newer homes so it was affordable Uh, there was uh there was retail there was grocery stores the local bodegas and it was—it felt very much at home to them, and then they had tight knit communities that were very walkable, pedestrian friendly, uh, and that's where I grew up. So it was—you know—we lived in a bubble for the first few, first ten years. It was a ideal uh, upbringing, just tight knit community and family, and other people moving there that we knew. Um, it was also a very uh, kind of crazy, dangerous time in Miami, late seventies early eighties. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with you know the cocaine cowboy days and the drugs and. Time magazine vice. yeah time magazine article came on in the it's, early 80s no, not mammy vice yeah, <laughs> it was, <you> know, <laughs> not, I mean it was it very was,
0: fashionable time it was,
2: it was, there's a lot of, you know, mammy vice and scarface there's a lot of realism in there there's a lot of things that really oh. resonate as, mm-hmm. as over the top as they, they both were uh, you know those time magazine articles said paradise lost mm. uh the, wow. the, the, the cover and and it, you know there were a lot of murders and 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 killings related to drug trafficking. And the weird thing is, I didn't know that was not normal. <laughs> you know, I was, I was only 9, 10, 11 years old. And I thought that was just part of living in the United States. I didn't think there was anything mm-hmm. different about being in Miami. When you're that young, mm-hmm. you don't realize it's a local thing only. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. But you know, I did experience that. And I'm, and I'm glad I did because I saw the transformation of, of the city from not exactly a sleepy town, but you know, barely a million residents. And escalated to over two and a half million today, almost three million people. That That's amazing, you know, that growth. Uh, and I also saw the transformation of the city in the 80s, then again, in the 90s. And even today, it feels like every three or four years, there's this complete major overhaul of how the city functions and, and who lives there. When I first got there, you know, it was Cubans and Puerto Ricans. You know, there, there are a few different uh, nationalities, different you know, across Central and South America and the Caribbean. And now today, I think every country is represented. It, it's amazing uh, the diversity that there is down there now.
1: You know, that that's something that I, I think most people overlook um, about the Latino community is just how rich and diverse it is. I mean, there's, you know, different races, different identities, nationalities, as you described, Jorge. And I wonder how much will that be a part of the story that maybe the museum reflects upon? Because it is, you know, it's Hispanic, if I can use that term. Right. It's not a it's not a it's not a race mm-hmm. as we sometimes think about it. It's an ethnicity yeah. and the richness of the diversity, I think, is an important part of the story. Yeah, you're right. It, it's not a race. So it, it
2: it is a, it's a big challenge for us. Um, you know, it, it, and it's not it's about the Latino experience in the United States. It's not about Venezuela, Cuba, Colombia, Mexico. It's, you know, you have that that cultural heritage you bring with you, but it's really about your experience uh, once you're here in the United States. Whether you yeah. have indigenous roots and it goes back 500 years, or or if you're somebody that arrived yesterday, so so it's not it's a, a little trickier. Um, the, you know, the way I, going back to you know finding those commonalities and the things that that we share, uh, I always point out this story. You know, I, I love doing like family tree, genealogy stuff, and a uh, 23andMe mm-hmm. and, me and all this <laughs> testing, right? And it's amazing yeah. you do it because, uh, you know, it's, it's just tracing you back to the common ancestors you have in in, in a region, right? Let's say. Um, so I'll I'll do mine, and I have my grandparents I know from the Canary Islands and other places of Spain and Portugal, but then I see I have second and third cousins across the world, right? And wow. I know my grandfather was one of six kids, and he went to Cuba, but his brothers went to Mexico, and another went to Venezuela. So I have like hmm. cousins. That grew up with a completely different heritage, right? They're Mexican yeah. yeah. American. They were born in Mexico and they have all these different traditions and we're closely related, right? You know, we have the same heritage. And then we start communicating and I've emailed a couple back and forth and, and you realize all these things you have in common with them the way you were brought up, the way, uh, you know, these certain traditions that you share. And we, you know, we celebrate a lot of the same uh, holidays and customs and foods. And so you can still retain your individualism and, and and celebrate what makes you unique, like makes all of us different, right? But when you bring it all together and and you see all that rich history, that tapestry that we have, and 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 where it intersects, that's really those connections are really what what excite me.
0: Um, Greg, have you ever done Twenty Three and Me?
1: I have not. I um.
0: I think you and I should both do it this season. <laughs>
1: We should. There might even actually be a connection. Well, it, I yeah, was about to say, we're be related. Really, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> it could be a really unique discovery. But that's a great idea. Let's do it. I'm all in. That'll be fun.
0: Jorge, the the kind of um, experience you had growing up that was both, it sounds really quite lovely. Um, you called it a bubble. And there was crime around you. Um, is Does any of that experience... Stick with you when you're planning exhibits or shaping the narrative for the museum.
2: it does. you know again, and and I say part of the bubble was because you know we were at a certain part in our age. we didn't we didn't realize what was going on on other parts of the world of the United States. And also it was because we didn't travel much. you know I didn't we you know we were lower income, we were poor. Uh, we didn't have means to go on vacation or or leave our community really to even drive anywhere, so that you know, we were kind of uh, you know, unfortunately, we didn't see, we didn't know much beyond our circle of friends and family, but at the same time, I look back at that now and, and, and reflect on that. And, and that's exactly the kind of experience that helps me connect with, with many people in our community. When, I, when we visit different cities and neighborhoods and, and they're still going through that, you know, they're still experiencing that because they, they've been only here for two or three years. They, they're working two jobs, the, their families are struggling and they're in the same boat that I was, you know, 50 years ago. It's an amazing that that's still going on. Um, so You're I can getting
0: Big nods from Greg. Greg, yeah, this I is, can relate to that. Yeah, th- yeah, Greg. This is an experience yeah. you have over and over, right?
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I, um, I was actually formulating in my head a really important uh, question. Um, so I missed part of Jorge, your response, but um, you know, I was, I, I was thinking as you were responding to that question. As a curator, are, do you go into the experience, and maybe this is related? Do you go into it with a narrative and a story that you want to tell, or are the the is the discovery process sort of helped to shape what ultimately the museum becomes in the story that's told or the experience that people have? I just when I have gone to other um, museums uh, at the Smithsonian, it almost feels like there is a there is a certain narrative that's being told by the entire experience that you have and do you go into it with a certain narrative or are the individual items and artifacts and discovery helping to shape ultimately what people are experiencing and come away with yeah that's an excellent question
2: we you know when, when you build a museum you, you'll you know you have temporary exhibit space and you could do exhibits on sports and music or food but then you have the central theme and that carries a permanent exhibit the a major storyline that you see let's say when you visit the african-american history and culture museum and there the theme is slavery and we're you know the beginnings of uh, in this country of uh, enslaved uh, people and where that you know everything's happened since then so for us it's it's about over the next few years trying to figure out what is that central theme that main mm-hmm. thrust that, that will tell the story and it's not that easy so we have to um we, re- we really have to meet, like I said, meet with many people and academics and the community and people just in, in, in everyday walks of life and trying to figure out what is it that, that brings us all together. So I'll give you an example. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, well, you know, you have a lot of stories about struggles and resiliency. And then you have on the other side, mm-hmm. people, that only want to celebrate their culture and their heritage, and they're proud to be in the United States. I said, you know, what? they're the same thing. People on, on one side, they're saying mm-hmm. that they to fight for their rights to to live in this country and people there on, the, on this side saying that this con- they owe everything to this country. They're both looking for progress, right? They're both yeah. looking to make it. They're both looking to achieve something. And that right there is the central common theme. So maybe that's a vein that we mm-hmm. use to you know branch out. Um, so, again, those are things that will be developed in the next few years with the help of many to develop that program. You know what is it you're going to see when you walk into this museum? Yeah. Yeah,
0: I want to back up for a second, if if I may. Um, Jorge, you were talking about the kind of, as you put it, poor upbringing that you had, and that you now, you're in such a different position in your life. And you go into Latino communities and see these communities where people are still struggling, where they're still economically impoverished. And Greg from getting to know you over these years, I feel like that's an experience you have too, that that you came from feeling as a kid, like you had enough, but then in retrospect, you see that your family was pretty poor. Now you're in a position of power, um, C-suite exec, and you go back into these communities. And I'd love to hear from both of you what that feels like.
1: You know, it's a, it's a really interesting burden, um, Faith. You know, I was home... Um, visiting my mom and family over Memorial Weekend, and just to sometimes return to your roots in those communities can be a very sobering, um, but also energizing um, experience in many ways. You know, so much disinvestment has happened in inner cities and urban areas, um, where a lot of um, Latinos and Blacks, um, uh, you know, em- uh, emerge from. Um, it it's a it's a it's a burden and. You know, because your success is not only your individual success, but it's the the success of the community as well. Um, You know, people from your community view you when you when you quote unquote, whatever made it means when you've made it, the community looks at you and say, we've made it. (laughs) You know, Jorge has made it. Greg has made it. So we've made it. And so you shoulder a unique responsibility, one, to continue to um, to have that success. But two, you don't want to mess it up. Because you also feel, if you mess it up, that no one else from your community is going to get that opportunity. (laughs) You know, if Greg Cunningham messes up, you better believe there's not going to be another (laughs) black in the C-suite for a long time. Right. Right So whether that's true or not, that's the perception. Mm -hmm. And so you carry that responsibility. And, you know, at the same time, you, you, you feel like you want to use your positions. You want to use your influence to make sure that you're not only giving back. Um, to those communities um, in in ways that are really visible, but um, you're giving back in ways that are aspire that it, that help others aspire um, to achieve more. Um, I'll share one other really quick thing, and then uh, obviously would love to hear Jorge's perspective. But you know, Faith, we talked a few seasons ago about this wealth study that we did, and we're actually going to cut that data to uh, uncover the sentiments around wealth for the Hispanic community. But one of the insights that came out of the Building Black uh, Wealth Study that we did um, was this, this notion that fundamental um, to that community sense of wealth um, is the sense of community, is that they always want to make sure they're bringing the community with them. And I would I would be shocked if, you know, once we've sort of dig into the Hispanic Wealth Study as well, that that's not an important part of what success looks like to 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 members of the Latino community as well.
0: Jorge, do you, do you feel those same pressures that Greg was expressing? I mean, do you, do you ever, this is a, this is a big deal, Jorge. Do you ever feel like I better not mess it up?
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely, you know, some pressure there and it's, it's a good, and a good pressure, right? It's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. part of my success in in South Florida. And the reason I was in the museum for 21 years in the same museum and moved up in different positions was because I had to buy in from the community, you know, I, I knew everybody. And over the years, I built those relationships that are sometimes difficult for a new person to build and moving into the community. So it was, you know, I had business connections with people that I went to school with in second grade. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and later on in high school, and then you came, I came back from, from from my undergrad, and I you know, I was still home there for 10 years doing archaeology. So it's amazing those connections that you make over the years and you foster and it really builds who you are. But it also gives you that sense of how can I help? How can I do more? Uh, so when this opportunity presented itself, I didn't take it lightly. You know, I said this is, you know, we don't do it for the money. <laughs> we don't do it for the for the prestige, but we we do it because we have a certain passion for our work uh, in the museum field. And and it was also the larger Kind of a burden right this you know something you're taking on you feel the pressure and you, you feel the weight on your shoulders that there's a greater cause here someone asked me recently is that, well you didn't take this job because it's Smithsonian right you just took it because more money or something yeah. it's like I was like yeah I know I I yeah, you know, we sold our house. My <laughs> wife left her <laughs> 30-year teaching career. We picked up and sold everything and moved to D.C. Uh, because because of the money. It, you know, it's because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to create something special and something that will be with us for many generations. Now, it's not for me. It's not, it's not my kids, my grandkids. It's for millions of people that will visit the D.C. area over the next, you know, 50, 60, 70 yeah. years, whatever it may be and And learn and appreciate you know what we have to share.
0: the museum you referenced where you were before the Smithsonian is history, Miami, right? Yes what How did that come about? How did you go from archaeology, dusting off things in what we now know as dolphins' football field um to to running that museum?
2: It, it was it was part of that you know trajectory, really, where I was working. I was finding stuff in the field and artifacts. And working with collections and interpreting what we were finding, but we weren't really putting it on display. You know, they would be transferred over to other museums or for storage. Uh, so when this curatorial position opened up in 2000, I, I saw it as an opportunity to do, go to the next level. You know, now I can all the stuff that I found, all these things that were, we're we're uncovering now can be put on display. And and I had this opportunity when I first got there to completely redo the prehistoric section. So many many of the materials that we were finding over the past 20 years from in our company, suddenly we're being used uh, as the items on display. And I, and I worked at, i worked in that exhibit for two years uh, to completely retell the prehistoric story in South Florida, 10,000 years of people coming to South Florida, um, you know, living down there, just like people are moving down there today and keep on moving there. So it's really getting out of control. I think it's overcrowded and it's because <laughs> it's an ideal location, right? Even 10,000 years ago for the warmer weather and animals and fishing and hunting, an ideal the location. alligator jerky. Yeah, there, it was a little <laughs> bit of everything, I'm telling you. And uh, so, so it was kind of natural, trans, you know, so I, I went over there, I started working with collections, collection, started working with exhibits, and finally had this opportunity to have a say in the content. And that was really important. And that evolved, right? I, I, I went into other positions, managing some construction projects, and our expansion efforts to double the size of the museum. And little by little, you know, I was deputy director, and then I was a CEO for the past five and a half, six years. So it was it's a it was a great evolution really in the in my career.
0: Every time you say producing content that just computes in my brain as storytelling. You were you were you were using what you discovered to tell stories to, as Greg said, make them accessible.
2: It is. You know, that that's the funnest part of the job, it really is. It doesn't matter if you're a curator, a director, and marketing and fundraising. We all capture stories and and then sharing those stories uh with with the people that we meet, it's just amazing. And you'll never know you never know I, i''ve i've've I've come across some stories that are just mind blowing and some of the items that we've had in display. tell me and tell
0: me one. Tell me a story.
2: I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a couple. you know so I, I shared this the other day with some of the donors, uh, an event we had. and in the first week I started at the museum, history of Miami in two thousand, I find this wallet on my desk. And it just had a little note on it, a little piece of paper, and said this wallet was found in the Cuban refugee boat that we have at the warehouse. Wow. So we had this boat that that was found with no other information. The Coast Guard had picked it up in Marathon Key. It had drifted in. Nobody knew where it came from. They knew it was Cuban because some of the belongings on there inside the boat. Uh, made out of metal, kind of Frankenstein-looking thing. Bolted <laughs> together with screws everywhere and bolts. Uh, big Russian inboard motor. Big Ford steering wheel on it. Uh, just. You know, does not look seaworthy at all. Uh, really heavy looking. Some gas cans inside of it and nothing else. And I find this wall and I open it up from the previous curator. And inside is an ID and a photograph of a little girl. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, the, and the ID has a person's name on it. His name a Russian name. Many people in Cuba, um, name, many people name their kids with Russian names uh, going back to the 70s and 80s. Huh. And his, his name was Yuri. Uh, Cardente Hernandez, and so I said, "Well, wow, that's curious." I has his photo, his photo ID, um and I said, "This, you know, it, it's tied to the boat. We got to find this guy, right? You know, and this is <laughs> 2000. Google is still not very effective. I'm dating myself here, for the internet back then wasn't what it is today. So I'm going crazy for weeks, and I can't find anybody named Yuri Hernandez anywhere. Uh, so I decided, you know, let me go look at the white pages. People still know these. And I'm sure you're still wow. familiar with the white pages." Wow, that- yeah, we had the yeah. yellow pages and the white pages. Putting on my
0: acid wash jacket to
2: flip yeah. through those. <laughs> so, we, so we had the entire, you know, white pages going back, you know, like a hundred years actually in, in oh, our collection. Wow. So I go back and I start looking year by year and I said, well, this boat, he had think here arrived in 93. So I started looking in 94, 95, 96. And I couldn't find a year in Hernandez, but somebody told me, he goes, you know, you're looking for the wrong name. His name is Yuri Cardente. Hernandez is a surname, his mom's name. When you come to the United States, you usually drop your second surname. Tell wow. me about it, like, man. This is wow. kind of. so. So I look up Yuri Cardente, and there he is in the phone book. There's two addresses for him. Um, he, I start calling. He, you know, back then again, there's no cell phone. so the number you're calling is a landline. And yeah. why would he pick up the phone from nine to five while I'm at work when he's at work, right? Yeah. So, so I find his side. Let me let me go in person. So one day I leave work late. I wait till like 630 and it's, it's in that little Havana neighborhood I grew up in. So on the way home, I stop by this duplex and I knock on, on his door. And he, uh, this person, I knew it since I had his photo ID. He opens the door, kind of startled. Like, what did I do? You know, who are you? Right. Like, Who are, I are you? My yeah. door and I hear something in the background. And I say, you know, Yuri, is this your wallet? And I open it up and he looks at it and then he just breaks down crying. That's his daughter. Uh-huh. Like he left. He left in Cuba. And oh, he, was the, owner, he wow. was the owner of this boat. And it's just one of those moments, you, you know, we both can you know, get so emotional. He goes, that's my ID. Where did you get this? And I said, we found this wallet in your boat. And he goes, what boat? That boat was lost at sea when they rescued us. So he goes on to tell me wow. this amazing story, which I'll paraphrase here because it's longer. But so they wanted to leave Cuba, him and his brother and they, or a friend of his. And they start building this boat. He worked in an auto part, uh, in, a, in a body shop, fixing mm-hmm. cars. And every day he would steal or take home one little bolt or screw. So they wouldn't notice that he was taking them. Wow. And Im- Im- eventually he starts getting uh, sheet metal from different abandoned cars in the streets. And they start putting together this boat, this Frankenstein looking boat. And it's yeah. all the sheet metal, they can't weld it. They can't do anything else. So I had to screw it together with these bolts that he took each day. And they find an old generator for a motor. They put this thing together, they launch it in the river, him and his brother and a friend. And they, uh, in the dark of the night, they time when the patrol boats are going by on the coast so they won't get intercepted and caught. And they finally launch and it breaks down within like 100 feet.
1: Wow. <laughs> and they're
2: devastated. And after months and months of planning, they had this thing hidden under a tarp in their yard and they're scared of getting caught. They had to say goodbye to their family already, He's leaving his wife and daughter behind. So they had to drag this thing back. They have no trailer. uh, And they go looking for a part for the carburetor that broke down. So they find someone that has the part. And he says, well, I'll give you this part, but you got to take me and my cousin also. (laughs) (laughs) So now now it's five men on on this smaller boat. And they launch again and they make it out to sea. It's amazing. They're out in the ocean. They're trying to you know, get on the straits because if you if you find the current it will just take you up along the keys and along the coast of florida it's only 90 miles from launch point mm-hmm. it's amazing so they um they get on there they're sitting on the gas cans the gas fumes are killing them he decides at one point to sw- change to his swimming trunks takes his pants off that has his wallet inside yeah. wow. right? so it rolls it all up and puts it under the center console and forgets about it right so they're drifting. The boat breaks down. They see a big freighter coming by like a day or two later. You know, there have been thunderstorms and sharks everywhere. <sighs> Typical story. And, and he says, well, there's a freighter approaching. The freighter drops a rope ladder to rescue them. And they're worried. They say, is this a Soviet freighter? or Is this a friendly freighter? So he says, I'll go, I'll go up the rope ladder. If it's friendly, I'll wave you on. If it's, if it's not friendly of Soviet, I'll take my hat off my baseball cap and throw it into the ocean. So he so that's the plan. Right. He says, if it is just start swimming, do not get on, get away from us. Mm. So they, uh, scary. So they so he starts climbing the rope ladder. It turns out, to, I think it's like a Danish or, or Swedish ship. It's friendly. Mm. They take them on. They bring them to the Coast Guard in the Keys. And back then the policy with the wet foot, dry foot was that if you made it to land or you were rescued, you were allowed to stay in the United States. So they, they made it. They get to the United States. Their boat <laughs> is left out in the Gulf, somewhere in the Straits, or in the Straits of in the, in the Atlantic. And eventually it drifts and makes it to shore in the Keys. And the boat is found by someone and it's donated to the museum. So putting all this together. That's incredible. Yeah, freaking amazing uh, story. That's just, a movie. Yeah, that's just, a movie. Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. I think the History Channel did a Mysteries at the Museum about it years ago.
0: But, but Jorge, <laughs> yeah. that's, yeah. Uh, I mean, When people hear artifact, they think of some dusty item that you found with a chisel and a you know a toothbrush. But that is that is a simple idea a wallet, right? And it's that's just one man's story. One story,
2: yeah. Yeah. And it's more you know the incredible thing is then he gets we find the boat, we reunite him with the boat. He comes to visit the warehouse. He brings his family. And we reunite four out of the five guys that came on this uh, boat. Oh
0: my gosh! Yeah, so,
2: so we recorded the entire story, and then later on, we had it on an exhibit. We had it on exhibit, and he came by with his wife and his daughter, which he brought from Cuba oh, and their thank new God. baby. Yeah, so they were all reunited, and they got to see the boat for the first time. And of course, the kids like, "Is that really? You really came on this boat? They, they can't believe it, right? Yeah, this thing actually made it." He's a, you know, so emotional about it, and he we stayed in touch over the years. And he's opened his own auto body, you know, but, um, auto part. Uh, sorry, car repair shop. He has a house. He has he settled down. He's a successful businessman. So this is a great story, right? A struggle and resistance, and still so the toughness. And he makes it to the United States, and now he's you know happy as can be, reunited with family and friends. But all that from just an ID card that was found in this old wallet. It's it's amazing you know, the stories you could piece together.
0: How do you yeah. put that story? I mean, Greg, uh, my mouth yeah, is the, open. Uh, we were we we're riveted. How do you put that? I can't believe it. I, I know. And and then that's, thank that's God you movie. you really buried the lead. You got to his daughter at the end. The whole
1: time I was like, <laughs> right. what happened to his daughter? What happened um, to the daughter?
0: <laughs> how do you share that story at at the new Smithsonian yeah. Museum? What do you yeah. what? Please tell me you're going to.
2: Well, hopefully, you know, the we don't own the boat. The, my former museum owns the boat, but, but, you know, those are things you can borrow, right? You can borrow yeah. pieces. We borrow yeah. uh, items I'm from older. other museums yeah. and we could share that, uh, again, his voice recording, telling the story himself and his friends. Uh, I remember seeing one night he invited over to his house and they were all there and we just sat around, you know, the pool and had a conversation and shared a drink and they were all reminiscing about, you know, where they are now. One's in Puerto Rico, the ones in New York. Uh, and with their lives, the past their lives you know where they where they are today, and they are so thankful for the opportunity and uh and again, just
1: blown away that somebody cared about their story in their boat
2: <laughs> and
1: to your, your I- point faith, there's so many there there there's so many stories like that, right Oh, um, to be told, which is why this museum, which is why the work that you're doing, is so incredibly important, my gosh, yeah,
0: every immigrant is a story and yes and i also wonder jorge you know i feel like um for a lot of americans and maybe when i say this i mean for a lot of white americans there's this notion that the latino experience always overlaps with an immigrant experience but that's not true there there are you know 12th mm-hmm. generation latinos who are <laughs> definitely in, in, uh, we can't compare who's more American and who's not. Right. The the right. immigrant could arguably be the most American uh, person around. Um, but but is there is that a challenge in showing the Latino experience of of being American? It's not just immigrants coming to this country from so many different other countries. Right.
2: That's mm-hmm. important. And I think it's something that we, that we do well in the, the current exhibit. We have a Presente at the Molina Family Latino Gallery. This gallery, you know, that, that exhibit in that gallery, is, is, it's amazing because it really it, it was eye opening for me. It's things that I learned. Um, you know, we have people living in, in what's now the United States for hundreds of years before that border changed. Yeah, yeah. A, they're saying that they're, part yeah, we, I was we just didn't, gonna say. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't, we say they're saying you know we didn't we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Once that, once that treaty, once that treaty right. was signed, you know, parts of what's now United States, you know, parts of Mexico became the United States. But
0: and that many right there, li- what you right. just said, Jorge, is history that I don't think a lot of people either know or say explicitly.
1: I right. think they know it, Faith. They just don't want to just talk know. about it, and which would take us to a whole different place. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, it, it, well, you know, we they're, have. They're, yeah, it's for for years, and, you, and you're taught this
2: in school, right? You know, manifest destiny, and and uh, the march across to the west. You know, basically based on religion and making everything pure, and and that was a real thing. And that that was basically a yeah. you know a, a wave of of mass you know extinction. You know, making sure that everybody else took over. You know, the United States. that was coming to the United States. You know, the new settlers. Um, and that's, it's, it's what we were taught was the right thing to do, right? When you were in school and you you learn history, but it's not necessarily the right thing for people that were here for hundreds of years and had settled most of the United States. So it's, it's a, it's a tough conversation to have for many people, for many visitors, about what really happened over the past, you know, 500, 600 years.
1: Yeah. And, and will you deal with that in, in ways that other museums have, um, Jorge, I know you referenced the African-American museum and one of the things I found really interesting about that museum is the way that it starts with it does start with slavery but it ends with it, it leaves you on a high note right it it right. really is a story of triumph and resilience as you as you leave there and i would imagine similar there's a similar arc to the latino story in america and you know will you will you sort of tell that historical perspective about the border crossing over uh the community it's- versus the other way around and
2: yeah, we you know, we we need to do, you know, and we do a little bit of that in the gallery already, but you know, celebrating those legacies and you know, the and and the, you know, how mm-hmm. we have shaped the history of the United States over the past years, that's so important. You know, we're so we're yeah. sixty sixty-three million Latinos in the United States today, mm-hmm. and it's exponentially changing and growing over the next decade. Uh and a major majority of, of those numbers are, are youth, right? Like, you know, under yeah. under 27. I forgot the number the ages. Um uh, driving, impacting our economic force, you know, our, our labor force. Uh, the numbers are there and it supports this growing community. But it's also about, you know, uncovering and telling the stories of achievement and, and, and those legacies and in all fields of life. And, and the African-American Museum does a, a great job in, you know, celebrating the sports legacies and music and all these other traditions mm-hmm. that come to play. And I'm telling you, this museum, because when you when you think about what brings people together, Food and music are probably top two, right? (laughs) I don't care where you're from. (laughs) Yes, Uh, so you can imagine the possibilities. You know, when we start exploring those traditions and even in music, the 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 shared commonalities with other cultures there. But food, Uh, this week, somebody asked me, are you going to have a great (laughs) restaurant or cafeteria? It's
1: a no-brainer. It's a (laughs) no-brainer. Imagine (laughs) imagine
2: the possibilities of uh, of trying food from all these different cultural backgrounds and heritages, and then uh, you know, having espresso, Cuban coffee, little window—you could walk up. In the afternoon, uh, it's just you know having that community feel—a big open plaza, maybe, where you feel uh, welcome and you feel like there's no barrier where you could walk into a government building because yeah. um, that's a barrier, right? You, for some people, they don't want to walk into museums; they think they're government buildings with the metal detectors and, and scanning <laughs> and whatnot. Imagine if you open that museum up to the community, to the. The outer area, you know, to the, to the, to the neighborhood to say. It's
0: a party. Yeah. 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 You know, here's a question I haven't asked you yet. Uh, How does it feel to hold the title of director of this, of this museum, part of the same museum that utterly changed your life? And I might add, you're charged with the vision and conception of this. I, I know you have a whole team around you and you're probably working with architects and curators and all, all the things at once, but, but you described your upbringing as, as, you know, lower income. You're, you're the son of immigrants. How does this feel, Jorge? Yeah,
2: it's a great honor. It really is. And and unless somebody points it out like you just did, sometimes I, I take it for granted. I just forget because I'm really you know focused on um, just getting the job done and, and trying to do the best I can. Um, but, it, but it is, a, it is good to reflect on it, especially when you're feeling a little deflated or maybe, uh, you know, overworked or burdened or overworked, <laughs> you, you, you realize the opportunity that, that, that I have um, to, to make a difference and to do this. Because it's, it, like I said, it's, it's, uh, I don't take it lightly. Um uh, I got to remind my wife sometimes I think about <laughs> this re- <laughs> responsibility I take, I've taken on, because uh, it is a lot, not only for me, for family and for everybody else. And I like Greg mentioned earlier, and you did too, about the community and, and how they feel about what you're doing and uh, and not, let, not letting them down. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot mm-hmm. of people say, well, you know, what do you care about what other people think about you in life? And it's like, well, I, I do care because, you know, I took on this job, this responsibility and I'm representing 63 million people, right? They yes. want to see their stories being told. So I, I don't take it lightly.
0: Have there been community members throughout your time at History Miami and now who have been a guiding light in this field for you? I, I think about representation um, who, who mm. have been Latino uh, museum, you know, our executive directors and curators.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, sadly, there's not many. And that that's probably the problem. We were fortunate here uh, at the Smithsonian. Eduardo Diaz, which is now my deputy director, he was a director of the Smithsonian Latino Center, which was formed over 25 years ago, and and through that initiative, you know, it's made such a big difference. Uh, Congress has a, you know, there's there's Latino initiatives pool of money that's used to fund uh, curators and other positions at different museums across the Smithsonian. So for the past 25 years. We've developed that base, right, where we have people in each museum developing content and curatorial work and collections work that are Latino. And now those positions, many of them are, 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 are fully funded. They're permanent. We don't need to advocate for them anymore as we used to. So it's taken many, many years to get to the point where we are. The legislation alone for this museum... You know, it took almost 30 years to get to the point where they passed it in December 2020. That's amazing. Wow. Just to get, 30 to, the point, years. Yeah, just to, get to that point where, where it was passed and said, OK, now the Smithsonian is tasked to, to build a museum because we couldn't ask for that. And Congress had to tell us that and start building your team, hire a founding director. Um, you start building your collections. We got to do all these things. They start raising a lot of money. We need to raise over 500 million dollars to get to that point. And that's just in the private corporate side and member side. That will be matched by appropriations. Are
0: there specific moments in American history that center on the Latino experience that you think are undervalued in in the broader cultural mm-hmm. narrative?
2: Hmm. Well, that's tough. I would say probably every moment in Latino history is undervalued.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Uh, it's uh, sadly, like you said before, you know many many of our stories are taken for granted or are tied into immigration only. Or labor, or agriculture, or certain movements, and 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 that's because Latinos, you know, do a lot of the work that that you know not many people do, right? They don't don't want to do, because they'll do anything to succeed. They would do anything to persevere and make sure they can take care of their families and and move forward. Um, so every a lot every to, time yeah.
0: someone notes that, I I, I mean, let's just call it a positive stereotype about yeah. the Latino community. I think of that line in Hamilton where they say immigrants, they get the job yeah. done. And everybody always <laughs> yeah, brings out yeah. into applause. It's just yeah. there you go.
2: It's true. And so there's a lot of typecasts out there, but you know, a lot of stuff is true. And 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 um but but sadly, again, going back to when I was at school and I know it's a long time ago in high school, but you open a textbook up and there's nothing in there. There was just zero to do with with history that that was at, you know at least possibly related to things that i knew and i took span i took some spanish classes i knew who like jose Marti was because my parents knew who he was in cuba and he was a revolutionary leader i knew who cesar chavez was and that's about it that's pretty mm-hmm. sad that was mm-hmm. amazing and then you you, know, you visit our gallery and you see the legacies there you know we have astronauts in space we have yeah. <laughs> you know supreme court uh justices we have mm-hmm. you know some of the best, best at best athletes in the world uh, coming from our countries, you know. So there's there's a lot to be celebrated, also. Yeah.
0: What did you do when you first learned you got the job?
2: Hmm. That's um. Trying to think. Besides telling my wife, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting process when you when you get recruited uh, for these positions because you you think about it and you you think about it some more and you say, do I really want to do this? Because I know it's going to be a heavy lift. And and I had, I got to say, I had, a, I had a great job in South Florida and life and community. Um, so it's not necessarily like I was looking for a new job. I was, I was happy where I was. So it's really about, like I said before, the opportunity that that it presented itself. So when I, uh, when I started the, the process and the interview process, and it's a good six months of work.
0: Yeah, Jorge, um, I saw yeah. a list of the people on the search committee and it was like, it was like, what is that? Is it Genesis in the Bible where it's so-and-so begat so-and-so? It was just, this <laughs> list was like 400 people long. And and I'm thinking like, do you, when, when you have a search committee that big and it's such a big process, is there, are there multiple interviews where you sit yes. down and, okay, so what was the hardest question you were asked? Was
2: it, I, I, how are you going to yeah. get
0: us $500 million?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Well, yeah, it's two part. Yeah. The, the first part, it, it, it is complicated and we couldn't do it in person because of COVID. So they were mm-hmm. still doing everything on Zoom. So I had, I had like one full day, almost of Zoom interviews. I had like a half day in September, then back again for what we call the castle rounds. Cause we meet, used to meet at the castle, the Smithsonian, but we did them online. Oh. So that was like from eight in the morning to about three in the afternoon with different rounds of panelists coming out to interview you. Was it so all in
0: English or was it in Spanish? Yeah,
2: either? all in English, but it was very intensive. It's, uh, you know, we met with over probably 30, 40 people uh, kind of grilling you and asking you questions. But at the same time, it asking questions. was the hardest one. It's, so it goes back to yeah, the second part. Of the, I, I think it's asking you for for what was my vision. And that, yeah. I didn't have to narrow down exactly what the vision for the museum was, but it's more like how are you going to get us from A to Z, right? How are you going to, yeah. how are you going to, mm-hmm. You have do it. it to take, yeah. Do you have it? takes. And I, and I think part of that is what I've always told everyone is you need to have the stamina, right? Cause I can say I have the stamina for one year. I feel like doing this for two years, but that's not going to cut it. You got to make sure you get, you know, like most of our people, you have the perseverance the, to do, to, to last, you know, 10 years, 12 years and, and be able to fundraise and be able to understand collections and how they work and collecting stories so I think it was the overall package of all things I had in my career, uh, I had done in my career that really helped, but it was really about listening, you know, listening to what people needed and what they want. And I think that, that helped a lot.
1: But don't you feel, um, Corey too, when, when people ask that question about vision, what's your vision and, you know, how do you, how do you continue to get up and do this work every day? When people ask me that question, I always feel like my lived experience going back to faith your earlier question and i think your individual story your individual um sense of resilience and perseverance your individual lived experience does that fuel you like when you when you've had the really really tough days and you go and you're reminded of why you're doing it and it just helps you sort of push through and oftentimes gives you that advantage that you need to just keep going It really does. And, you know, I I tell people
2: all the time at the end of a long day, it could be a Friday, and I'm walking back from my office. That's two blocks off the mall. And I'm parked across the mall and I walk and I see the, you know, the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument and the castle and all the museums lined up. And you really do have a deeper appreciation for what you're doing. (laughs) You're like, this is amazing. You know. Yeah. You also, think back, like you know, when you're I was, you're seeing yeah.
0: Lincoln, you're seeing Lincoln looking looking down on you. You you got the Washington Monument. You are part. You yeah. are you so are central to the American experience. You know. Yeah. You yeah, anyone you gotta pinch has, yourself
2: sometimes. Yeah. 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 You do. You gotta pinch yourself and realize, you know, what you're doing here is so monumental, and you know this museum will be right along all these other museums and monuments, and just as important. Mm-hmm. Legacy stuff.
0: So, Jorge, you know, there, you had this recurring, challenging question of what is your vision? Um, I'll get more specific than that. What is a, what is a dream exhibition for you?
2: Hmm. That's a great question. I think the ideal exhibition will be one that will feel welcoming to everyone that walks into the museum from all parts of life, whether you're Latino or not. Where you will see your stories being represented for the first time on these walls where you will see everything from, you know, hardships you may have faced immigration, or is it and you know, stories of resiliency, celebrating legacies, they're all being there, but at the same time, you know, making sure that the, the, I think that one of the things, the toughest things we will do is making sure our story is relevant to everybody else, to everybody that comes to those doors, I don't want to only be about Latinos uh, feeling like it's their story. That's important. That's number one. But I want, like you said before, I want people that, that will visit the museum to say, I didn't know that. I, I, mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't known that before. I didn't know, you know, that Latinos were here for so many years or their experiences go back before the United States was formed. And that That's so important to me uh, to see how deep and enriched our history is. And at the same time, being able to celebrate, you know, what we have in common and these legacies, and at the end of the day, you know, making sure we have good food in that cafeteria, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> key. That's key.
0: I've heard you say that for you, a museum is an emotional experience. It's. It sounds like emotion is is the secret sauce. Hmm.
2: I think so. I think a passion and emotion. Um, I've always told if, if you can move somebody, if you can make somebody cry, and I mean that in a positive way, that means that means you did your job. And you know, when you share stories that move you, that make you feel a connection to something personal or make you feel connected to, you know, Yuri coming from Cuba and with his daughter in that photo, if if I could if we can make that happen, that magical moment where you make that connection, where you want to meet Yuri, right? You want to know what happened to him, oh, maybe right here. Yuri. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it, if we can do that on a recurring basis and throughout the museum, we succeeded.
0: How do donations like like those that U.S. Bank is providing support your your work to help, you know, correct this education gap uh, that people may have regarding the influence of Latinos on American culture?
2: Yeah, well, it's so instrumental. You know, we're so grateful for the support, especially the early the support early on uh, when we're trying to you know get started and shape this program and 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 how we build this museum um it's so it's so key you know we we can't do it without that uh we're gonna have to bring on you know consultants and and advisors and travel throughout the the united states with all these different communities being interviewed having town hall meetings listening circles it's gathering their input to make sure that they're they feel they're part of the story the last thing i want to do is is go out there and say, okay, give me your story, give me your artifact, your objects, and I'll never see you again. Right. You know, we disappear. Yeah. And mm-hmm. guess what? Many of those people are never going to DC because they don't have the means to to come to our museum. You know, they might not be here for another 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So we gotta make sure we that those connections that we form are maintained over the next decade or more. And and that's through, you know, community support, uplifting their stories, you know, from the local to the regional to the national level. That's important. Uh, making sure we support their exhibits. We're doing that right now with, um, with a traveling exhibit from the Riverside Museum, from the Sheets Museum in, in Riverside, California. And we're making sure that exhibit travels to different venues across the United States to make sure those artists are represented in different places, right? So we yeah. got to find ways and that's where the funding is so important that we continue to make those connections, forge those connections and maintain them. And, and that's just instrumental for us.
0: I never thought of. About the fact that because DC seems so close and accessible to me, not only because mm-hmm. I live close by, but I have family there, um, I never thought about the fact that for a lot of people they may not get to this museum. They may contribute to it. Um, they may know about it and feel represented by it, but they may not. They may not quite get there.
2: That's mm-hmm. key. It's key. That, that, that's a. That's a reality. That's the reality. So the challenge, another challenge is like, so how do we make this national museum, I'm telling you a national story, how do we make a national museum community-based, which is, yeah. you know, yes. first, for some people, it's impossible. But I'll tell you, every time we do programming, and we had a poetry night last month mm. uh, with a former poet laureate from Obama, Richard Blanco, we had 250 people here on a Saturday night. And mm-hmm. those were all community people. Those were all locals that came to see this. So there's, there are ways to to, you know, to connect with local communities. And we could do that in different places across the United States. Right. So it doesn't just have to be here. So, you know, getting our message out that
1: awareness of what we're doing and how important it is, um, that that's instrumental. I, I think that's such an important point, Jorge, because the this, this celebration of this community and this culture, um, and I hope you agree with what I'm about to say. It's, it's not a place. The The place is central to um, to the celebration and an aggregator of the content in a place where people can visit. But what, what will really happen um, is actually a movement, is sort of this, um, this reckoning, reawakening of the culture and its contribution to America more broadly. And you can visit the place, but how do you transport that feeling? And that's where I think um, companies like U.S. Bank, other leaders within these communities that you're talking about, can really be catalysts um, to help this 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 reckoning, this reawakening, this celebration to happen. And if you have the privilege of visiting the museum, that's really really special. But there are other ways to continue um, to continue that celebration that don't include visiting visiting the physical museum. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, hey. Jorge. I noticed on your Twitter bio, you um, you call yourself curious. I think I think you have to be in, in your line of work. Um, what what are you most curious about right now as as the realization of this museum unfolds?
2: Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm curious of, of a lot of things, but uh, <laughs> I'm curious about where our current, you know, political climate would take us, you know, where our situation, uh, you know, across, you know can, how can we help? Bridge some of those, you know, divides and those issues that we have with this museum. I'm curious of, on the other side, what a museum looks like in 10, 12 years. That's yeah. really exciting to me. Yeah. I'm curious about, you know, what technologies, what, which ways, how how we engage with content. You know, mm-hmm. how how do people expect to engage with content? That's really number one question for us. Um, you know, we have so so much technology now, including the new trends in AI and chat GBT and everything else. And that's evolving like overnight. So imagine in 10 or 12 years when you walk into a museum, what do people expect? And I still love the traditional exhibits and the power of a real object and the stories being told there. But the way you digest content, the way you expect to use your phone or your device to engage will be completely different. Uh, I always tell people, you know, whether you love QR codes or not, three years ago, nobody used them. Now everybody scans their menu in a restaurant with a QR code, right? That's, yeah. and that's yeah. In two or three years, we evolved due to the pandemic and due to other circumstances. And that's just a small example of how behavior is modified. And now you just open your camera. You don't need a native app. It's native to the camera app. You don't need a separate app just to open a QR code. Well, what's the next QR code, right? What's the next thing that we just take for granted that we use on a weekly basis, maybe, that help can help us in a museum? There's a lot of questions like that that I would love to explore. So I'm always curious about that. So you know, it's a lot. There's you know, politics, technology, uh, climate change, all these different things that really impact the way we travel and we visit DC. Uh, I love to explore all of those. I've always been, even as a kid, I was very curious about trying different things and and experimenting and building and taking apart things. I remember vividly, I was like six or seven years old. We had just moved to South Florida, and um, I lived in an apartment building in the back in the backyard. Somebody had thrown away a TV set. And as I borrowed some tools from my dad, I took apart the entire TV set see how it worked. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what, the heck, what kind of parents allow somebody to play? <laughs> but, you know, but I, I took apart the entire TV set and, uh, and, and I started building like my own radio because I, you know, I found wow. a book in the library on how to build a crystal radio and uh, these, these things that you would do back then from books. Uh, but it, it was that kind of curiosity has always been so important to me. And many people lose that. They, lo- they lose mm-hmm. a sense of curiosity especially when they get to like middle school and high school and you have to worry about grades and testing and, and your sports and you're dating and you're doing all these other things that are more <laughs> important you know and and, and I, that's part of the that's kind of what was reawakened or uh, you know when I visited a museum that sense of curiosity to explore and learn more which is what we offer. We offer that opportunity kind of like an open book where you could walk in and you could take it in as you like. You could read everything or you just look at things or you could walk real fast through the whole museum, go to the next one, or you could just sit there and take it all in. So I think that sense of curiosity is so important.
0: Well, thank you so much for, for meeting our curiosity with such thoughtfulness and generosity. And I wish you so much luck. I cannot wait to come to this museum I was about to say your museum but I no. figure you'll say it's everybody's <laughs> museum, our, right. museum. our
1: museum
2: that's right well thank you for having me this has been a great conversation I, I enjoy the thoughtful questions and uh I look forward to the groundbreaking and to the ribbon cutting
0: i'm I'm a little envious greg because I'm picturing you in a hard hat there in a, in,
1: in about <laughs> in about I'm nine all, years i I'm all I'm all for it I hope I have that privilege. And I think in 10 years, you'll probably be able to make people feel like they're on that boat with Yuri too. So yeah, (laughs) thank you. That'd be cool.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Real Good. If you like what you heard, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon and keep doing that real good work.